Welcome to this special Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. While I was at Innovation Forum's Sustainable Commodities and Landscapes Conference in Amsterdam recently, I was delighted to speak with a number of the expert panellists and delegates attending the event. Coming up now are insights and comment from Joseph de Cruz from the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, Pallava Sharma from Global Rights Compliance, Anita Neville from Golden Agri Resources, Giorgio Buda Indrato from Modani, Olivier Tichet from Musa Mass, Catherine Barton from Chester Zoo, Anna Halmari from Innovation Forum, and Peter Stanbury, also from Innovation Forum. Regulation Claxon, there is a lot of comment about the incoming European Union's deforestation regulation. Joining me now is Joseph de Cruz, who's CEO of the Roundtable Sustainable Palm Oil. Welcome, JD. Thank you very much. We've been talking a lot about this morning about regulation. And do you think with the rise of due diligence regulation, is certification's importance coming back to the fore again? Yes, but I think we also need to then be looking at certification in a slightly different way. Traditionally, a lot of the certifications we worked with were developed very much on a voluntary basis by like-minded stakeholders within the industry. RSP is a great example of that. If certifications are going to continue to be relevant in a much more complex regulatory environment, I think we need to get much better at contextualizing and situating them as effective and credible responses to those regulatory requirements, as well as being responses to the expectations and demands coming in from a range of other stakeholders, whether it's consumers, whether it's brands, whether it's regulators, etc. So yes, but I think certification framed and developed and, and presented in a different way. I guess it still remains one of the most important tools in the box. I think it's a critical tool for us because a certification system, if it's developed and implemented rigorously, actually provides something that is comparable across different contexts and different operators. So that level of comparability of rigor in how we demonstrate sustainability credentials, I think will continue to be an important element in the future as well. We talked a lot about policy today as well. Mm. What for you are the keys to ensuring that new policy drives positive impact? Number one, I think we need to recognize, especially when you're working with complex global supply chains, that policy interventions don't determine outcomes, they influence outcomes. Global supply chains are extremely complex and very large creatures, therefore, no single policy intervention is going to be deterministic in terms of where an outcome goes. What does that mean? That means in the development of those policy interventions, the people working on them need to have a clear sense of the reality of those supply chains, which means having to talk to the people in those supply chains, like-minded people who have the same intent, to figure out how an intervention in a particular part of the supply chain can steer the entire supply chain in the right direction. That's not always how it's done. Sometimes there's a perception of policy being deterministic. You can write rules for an industry. And the reality is that's not how outcomes actually end up happening. <coughs> policy in particular, impact on smallholder farmers is something we've talked about a lot today. Yes. What for you <coughs> are the types of policy that particularly can help smallholder farmers? I'll answer you in the negative to start off with, which is we have one example of the deforestation regulation we've been talking about quite a bit, where at first glance, it should not have a negative impact on smallholders because it doesn't explicitly mention excluding smallholders in any way. But the way in which the sector and the industry responds to that to minimize risk and ensure compliance does and is demonstrating an exclusion of smallholders. So that's a negative approach. On the positive, I think the most important element here is writing policy that is deliberately inclusive. Even if your mandate and your objective is around, say, environmental considerations, deforestation, climate change, understanding how to design policy interventions that support smallholders, forgive the cliche, but from the bottom up to change practices, I think is much more powerful 
than attempting to direct change from the top down through market or trade regulation. Obviously, mm -hmm. it's been really big here with the EUDR coming in and other, other aspects, other regulations. What do you hope to see in the coming years through to the end of 2024? I see a period of quite complex change. The EUDR will necessarily require a lot of effort by companies, organizations like ours and others, to put in place systems and structures to demonstrate compliance. The process by which companies do that is likely to shift supply chains, supply channels quite dramatically, which means, again, you may see a marked difference in demand and supply in marginal areas like from smallholders. I think and I hope this is also a really good example and perhaps a wake-up call for both regulators and industry to recognize that those of us who have a shared intent on sustainability, on de dealing with deforestation, climate, or indeed on labor and other regulations, need to forge a different way of working together to align the power and the effect of regulation and the good intent of the industry in the same direction, rather than seeing these almost as competing forces. It does feel like there's a lot of good intent around. It's a question of focusing <coughs> that good intent, I think, to suit through the next 14 months or so. For now, JD from RSPO, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm with Pallava Sharma from the Global Rights Compliance. Welcome. Thank you. We uh, had a session earlier today when we talked at some length about the EU deforestation regulation. Perhaps you can give us some context as to how you see the EUDR's potential impact uh, is evolving, how you think it's evolving. It's the talk of the town in the legal circles these days. It's one of the sustainability legislations that have been rolled out already, and it's a part of a spate of legislations that are going to come out. In terms of the emerging impact, I think one of the things that we need to watch out for is the benchmarking methodology that the EU is going to adopt to rank countries as low standard or high risk. Article 29 in the regulation, it does give a clear set of criteria that the EU would be following when they are considering the benchmarking methodology. It includes things like the rate of deforestation in the country, the trends in production of these relevant commodities, the agriculture land expansion in these commodities. It also talks about the participation in data sharing by these producing countries, as well as the general state of compliance of laws on deforestation and human rights uh, and indigenous peoples in these countries. It's a pretty tall order under Article 29 in terms of what the EU wants to consider decides on the methodology. However, we are yet to find out what this methodology is going to look like. Is it going to be commodity-based? Is it going to be sub-national or is it going to be national? Just to unpack it a little bit, let's take the hypothetical example of coffee being produced with deforestation in India. So would India be high risk for just coffee? Would India be high risk in those regions that produce coffee? or India be high risks for all the seven commodities under the EUDR. So we are still to find out what is the EU thinking and what the methodology is going to look like. This is one of the emerging impacts that I'll keep an eye out for. And of course, we're speaking in November 2023. Yes. We're only 14 months out. Yes, it's very relevant because the timelines are really short. It's about a year and a half for SMEs from now and a year for non-SMEs for now. So we really need to get started right away. Well, I think everyone was pleased that at least somebody in the room had read the regulations. <laughs> we were all very pleased that somebody had. Um, how do you see the EUDR aligning or clashing with other due diligence regulations that are emerging? If I just take the example of the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, which is the behemoth legislation that's expected to come out in the next couple of months, I would say that they are broadly aligned in their goals. Both focus on encouraging responsible business conduct in the operations of businesses and both focus on sustainability down to the last levels of the supply chain. They are more or less aligned in their goals. 
However, there are some key differences between the two. And if I could just name a few for you, since we don't have the time to do a whole thesis on this. The first would be that the EUDR, it adopts a commodity approach, which means that only companies, irrespective of the size, they could be micro companies, they could be big listed companies with 10,000s of employees. As long as they deal in these commodities, they have to be compliant. The directive, on the other hand, it takes a turnover and a number of employee approach. So if you're a company which has more than X number of employees, I think it's 500 employees and a 150 million euro global turnover, then you have to be compliant with the directive. And there are other conditions as well for compliances. The second would be the penalty. So for the regulation, the penal penalty is actually quite strict. It's an all or nothing strict liability where you have to conduct your due diligence, you have to mitigate the risks that you identify, and you have to ultimately ensure that there is no deforestation associated with the products that you're placing on the EU markets which is slightly different from the directive, where your burden is to conduct due diligence and take reasonable measures. Under the directive, you could also be sued for damages by victims whose rights have been impacted because of your acts or omissions, which is not the case with the regulation. So there are a few structural differences between how these two would operate. Uh, As I said, we are 14 months out of the implementation date. How do you expect things to develop between now and the end of 2024? For one, I'm expecting some guidance from the EU, and they've promised they're going to come out with it, and they will come out of it, especially on one, agricultural land and how it is defined, and second, where do private certification schemes sit in this broader landscape of the EUDR? So the EU is going to come out with clarificatory answers, and that's something we should watch out for. In terms of where we stand, my suggestion for companies would be just Presume that you are going to be sourcing from a high-risk company and start setting up your systems now. Do not wait for the kickoff date of a year or a year and a half from now. Just presume you're sourcing from a high-risk country and start now. I think you're right. It does seem that there's an urgent need for everybody to, to be getting, getting on with it. Thanks very much, Pallavi Sharma right. from the Global Rights Compliance. I'm joined by Anita Neville from Golden Agri Resources. Welcome, Anita. Hi, Ian. Uh, we've had a lot of conversations over the past couple of days about the European Union's deforestation regulation. 14 months out, how do you think it's going to be implemented or what will the road look like from here through to the end of December 2024? Well, I think it's going to be like watching one of those really slow motion train crashes in a movie. There's an inevitability to it. I think it's been fascinating that over the course of the conference, really it has been the dominating conversation. Everyone wants to talk about it. Everyone's concerned about it. And unfortunately, we know very little or we still have a real lack of clarity about exactly how implementation is supposed to work, what will be accepted in terms of the data to demonstrate compliance. And I think that the biggest threat or challenge, perhaps, is a better word than threat, around EUDR is that it is a binary game. You have to be 100% perfect mm -hmm. for every shipment of the commodities that are coming into the EU that are affected by the regulation from day one. Most businesses are very risk averse. Most businesses are now scrambling to understand what is the risk in my supply chain? How do I eliminate that risk between now and 14 months from now? in the hope that you can deliver shipments on the 5th of December 2024 or whatever the exact date is, that will be absolutely perfect, no non-compliance. So that's, I think, why it's dominating the conversation. And I think it's going to be really messy and chaotic. You're in the palm oil sector. I am. It does feel like palm oil's 
quite well ahead of other commodities. There's been a bit of a sense over the past couple of days of other commodities going, wow, we've got a lot to do here. I mean, do you think that palm yeah. oil's been doing the heavy lifting here? I really do, because palm oil has been in an incredibly vociferous kind of spotlight around deforestation, and rightly so. Like, we have legacy, we have game, not positive game in the past, and we've been really working very hard over the last decade or so to address deforestation in our supply chains and to decouple deforestation from palm oil production. I think palm oil became a proxy for the deforestation conversation in Europe as a whole, and certainly a proxy for the EUDR conversation. You know, I saw it a few weeks ago in coverage that came out of Vietnam around coffee, for example, where it feels as though other commodities affected by the regulation, coffee, cocoa, cattle, soy, rubber, pulp and paper, timber products, are suddenly going, oh, hang on a second, this applies to us too. So we've been doing traceability, we've been doing supply chain transformation, we've been doing satellite monitoring and doing all of this work as part of no deforestation, no peat, no exploitation commitments for the past decade, which we think gives Palm an excellent platform, but there's still a lot of unanswered questions and some quite serious unintended consequences of this regulation that we're going to have to work through in the coming 14 months. What do you think are the principal unintended consequences then? The main one discussed at this conference is how can we continue to have smallholders feeding into the European supply chain with these requirements for deforestation-free and particularly legality of smallholders. In the palm sector, smallholders represent about 40 to 50 percent of global production. Many of them are operating in a deforestation-free context but don't necessarily have the wherewithal or the documentation to be able to demonstrate compliance in a way that would satisfy the EUDR requirements as we understand them today, and particularly in relation to land title and legality as farmers. So I think the unintended consequence of the regulation is that we're going to see streaming of supply into Europe. And we've already seen some members of the palm sector publicly acknowledge that they continue to be committed to smallholder sourcing, but that sourcing won't enter the EU market. So the EU can say whatever it likes about that this isn't meant to be discriminatory against any kind of producer type, but I think the reality of the requirements, again, as we understand them today, maybe that'll change, is that smallholders will represent the weakest link in terms of this need for perfect compliance from day one, and will be moved out of supplying Europe and they'll supply other markets. No doubt there's been a drive by the EU markets to drive improvements in, in power supply and in other commodities. That incentive, that push is not going to be there anymore. It's a reality that European companies, European regulators have driven a tremendous amount of the progress that we've seen in sustainability and sustainable food systems and sustainable supply chains. And that push has also been backed, in most cases, by investment. What we've seen with the EUDR is regulation without that investment 
to ensure that producers can comply with the requirements. And that's just punitive. So there is a concern that as companies require EUDR compliance supply in order to continue to bring product into this market, where will the investment come from? Will they still be happy to invest in smallholder transformation, for example, if that smallholder product is not going to be able to enter into their European supply chain, but actually go somewhere else? And I think that's a question mark for everyone. I mean, do you think they're going to be just certain suppliers will stop supplying the European Union? Is this because, of, you know, why would they jump through all these hoops for a relatively small market? I want to be really clear, Golden Agri Resources, we like to supply to Europe. We have very good customers here in Europe and we will make it work. We're of a scale where we believe we can make it work and we've been making the investments, as I mentioned, in terms of 98.5% traceable to plantation sourcing and so on. So we're committed to staying in Europe. But yeah, I think that smaller actors may think twice. And I think that certain volumes that have traditionally come into Europe will be deviated somewhere else. What else is happening in the palm oil sector? What other things you'd like to be talking about alongside EDR? Oh, I think the other part of the conversation here, actually, the question around carbon accounting and how do we do that? How do we buy emissions reductions within value chains? What do we attribute to our own companies? What do we have to attribute to the national accounts? You know, this has been a really active conversation in Indonesia, for example, where the domestic carbon trading market has really only just kicked off in the last couple of weeks. So it's been really interesting to hear the conversations around carbon. And obviously, I think we're also looking at what does it mean when we start to talk about nature and biodiversity? Lots of language that is evolving still around nature net positive, forest positive. Sustainability just gets broader and deeper and you know, the regulations and the new frameworks are coming at us at pace. Quite a lot to, lot to, to sink about. your teeth into. Let's open 12 months time, we're not only talking about the EUDR. I suspect in 12 months time, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about because I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that it's a bit like that slow motion train crash. We'll be right at the point where the thing comes off the rails this time next year. Well, let's look forward to that. Anita Neville, thanks very much. My pleasure. <coughs> I'm joined by Giorgio Budi-Indrato, who's the director of Mandani. Why don't you start by just giving us a bit of background to the work of Mandani? Yeah, Mandani is actually an organization that built in 2016, and we are trying to convene actors of the civil society movement and also the company and the government actors to work together to create an innovative solution to create sustainability. We talked yesterday specifically about the upcoming European Union deforestation regulation. What's the Indonesian perspective on the regulation? Well, the perspective is kind of different between groups and there's a spectrum of that differentiation on each group. But in general, some of us is really angry with this situation, but some of us try to think that, okay, this is a momentum to change. and. I think that group need to be addressed. There are some notes that they have uh, on how this need to be moved forward. Sure. I mean, it's no doubt well-meaning legislation. The, the intent to eliminate deforestation in commodity supply chains is the right intent. Sure. I guess it's just the, the process of getting there is yeah. one that has its people who are for and against it, should we say. I agree, and I always said that we are reading the same book, right? Even yeah. EU, everyone is reading the same book of sustainability, but in a different chapter. Indonesia, probably in chapter one, and EU already chapter 10, but we are sure. having in the same book. We are aiming at the right direction now, but okay. uh, how to reach at the same pace for this part. 
clearly one of the big challenges is going to be around data, farmer data, getting the right data points yeah. to enable impacts to be assessed and, and for deforestation to be addressed. Yeah. What are the challenges for farmers in particular in Indonesia around the data, linking to EUDR and other data? Actually, on the data, far before the EUDR required data and the polygon, Indonesia government already have the requirement of having a polygon for the smallholders. So the data is there, actually. But not all. We still have challenge to implement that regulation. The challenge is more on the capacity and but the ability of the government to collect the data because Indonesia is quite wide. And to create that possibility, I think this is the, the momentum for EUDR cooperative joining forces with Indonesia to make that happen and it's possible I think because so many NGOs are already doing that. The data is now on the government and some part of Indian company and we just need to put the data on the table. But again the notes is important that some of the government of Indonesia still think that the data are confidential. We need to clarify what kind of a data that we need to open for the traceability aspect. Sure. And I'd imagine that investments required. What sort of investment levels would you like to see and into what in Indonesia? Yeah, I think the investments are not always necessarily about uh, financial investment, but also it could be in-kind investment. I mean, the system that's already being built with SVLK, for example, we can mimic that. And the technical assistance from the EU to build some kind of a system with the data that we already generate so far, it also could be helpful. At the end of the day, I think what we need now is sit into the same table, understand the same problem that we have, even the European also facing the same problem. If this being implemented without any investment whatsoever, time, dialogue and everything, nothing going to happen. And this is something that we need to address together as a nation between Indonesia and the EU. That's sure. Right. I think certainly one of the main conclusions from the conference is that there needs to be thought and a dialogue around the implementation of, of the EUDR so that a well-meaning legislation or the intent that is well-meaning can be introduced in a way that works and that yes. delivers on that intent. Yes, yes. And I think that the openness, the inclusiveness of how this EUDR should be followed up in the future is also need to be addressed, which is it's kind of a difficult now to get information about the EUDR and to get involved on the EUDR. Even if we invite some of the EU delegates, it's quite difficult to get their attention. Now we're talking about the joint task force. That's also difficult to get into. And some of our colleagues already get into the European joint task force, the NGO, the European NGO. But they said, it's well, it's just a meeting, nothing meaningful there. I think the dialogue needs to happen in genuine level from the commission, need to understand and listen to sure. what, what's happening on the ground. Let's see what happens. Giorgio, sure. thanks so much indeed. All right. Thank you, Ian. I'm joined by Olivier Tichet from Muslim Mass. Welcome. Thank you very much, Ian. We've had an awful lot of conversations over the last couple of days about the uh, European Union's deforestation regulation. It's dominated conversations in a way that I can't remember any single issue dominating conversations across the conference before. Muslim Mass have announced recently that for you, you may have to remove some smallholders from your supply chains because of the regulation. Can you explain exactly what it is that you've announced you're going to do and why? Well, first, I agree with you. I think even if we tried not to speak about the UDR, it came up into the, the discussion. So it shows, I think, how much we all care about it or how much we're afraid of it. So as far as smallholders are concerned, it's a problem that the UDR is asking us for strict compliance, no tolerance, not even for small farmers. If we look at the risk that's represented by the UDR, by the UDR implementation, we will have to exclude non-compliant producers, but we will have also to de-risk 
So smallholders represent accumulated a bigger risk because of their size and because of the fact that many of them might not have, for example, land rights documents. Because of that, they will not be compliant the way the regulation is explained today. And so we cannot just exclude one smaller here, one smaller there. It means most of the smallholders will have to be excluded from the European supply chains, which is extremely unfortunate, which goes completely against what we are doing as Mosimas, but which will be a consequence. I cannot expose us or our customers to the risk of sanction, which is in the regulation. So what's the solution then? I mean, are you looking for the EU to revise the regulations ahead of implementation in 2024? Well, first, I would love the EU to tell us what is actually the requirement. Example, legality. Does it mean that smallers all must have a land title, which is something which is quite unfair to many of them, which might push them to very costly procedures? Or is it just a matter of being in legal areas to grow their products? So that kind of thing might be where the EU has a way of easing smallholders back into the EU supply chain. So that's what we're expecting from the EU. Clarify what are the requirements, find ways to keep it inclusive to smallholders. And it can be a stepped approach. It can be that at the beginning the requirements are a bit more lenient, still going in the same direction, still trying to exclude deforestation. But then you get more and more, after getting, giving some support, get more and more into a stricter type of compliance. But you will have enabled the smallholders to be compliant. Is there any element of, of bluff calling in your announcement and trying to maneuver the European Union into change? I don't think we alone can manipulate the European <laughs> Union. I wish, but I don't think so. That's okay. one. Second, we are not very good at bluffing. Usually we do what we say. It's not bluff. We will have to exclude. And the EU is not a small market, but it's not such a huge market that we cannot exclude smallholders and still cover the requirements of the EU. What it will do, on the other hand, is that it will narrow the supply base for the EU. It will make it a lot more expensive. And I think the EU is not winning financially. It's not winning in terms of resilience because it will have a narrow supply base. And morally, it's definitely not winning. Mm -hmm. Any other unintended consequences of EUDR that you see coming? The one I mentioned, I think it's going to be more expensive. There's going to be tensions with governments because it's quite tough, the, the UDR. It, it came very brutally and, and the EU was apparently not ready for its implementation for, to explain how we're going to implement. So, but maybe the good side of it is that because it started on the wrong foot, everybody is going to make extra efforts mm -hmm. now to try to find out how we're going to actually make it work. Maybe today, maybe in one, two years' time, three years' time. Let's, maybe that will be the good thing coming out of it. One thing we did talk about was the potential impact on the commodities futures market. How do you think they will be impacted by the regulation potentially? That's something that confused me. So I, I used to be in coffee. So I, that's something that confused me greatly. The stocks of the exchange market for coffee and uh, I think for cocoa as well, the certified stocks or the stocks of the market are placed in the UK, but also in Europe. I do not understand how it's going to function. If you take delivery of stocks, how is it going to function? Are they in scope of the UDR, out of scope of the UDR? How is it going to physically work? And that worries me because then it upsets the market. And the coffee and cocoa markets are what we can call perfect markets. And they are critical to the price discovery of all producers, of Robusta and of cocoa. Why upset that? It's a pretty big risk that the UDR is bringing to those markets which really do not need it. How then do you think things will play out over the next 14 months? We're talking here in November 2023, implementation is December 2024. What's going to happen, do you think, between now and then? Only two things can happen. Either there will be a very big, truthful, very open consultation, and we're going to find ways of making it so that in particular smallholders remain 
included in the, in the regulation or there's going to be massive changes in the supply chains for the EU. That would be unfortunate and very costly. We'll see what happens over the next year and next maybe we'll be talking about it in 12 months' time. I'm sure we're going to be talking about it in 12 months' time, <laughs> definitely. Thank you. Olivia well, Tisha, thank you very much. I'm joined by Catherine Barton, who's policy lead at Chester Zoo. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your work at Chester Zoo? We do a few different projects at Chester Zoo. Our main aim is preventing extinction of biodiversity. So everything we do focuses back on biodiversity and animals and and extinction. But we do that in many ways. So one of our big projects is looking at supply chains, deforestation-free commodities. And we particularly work in palm oil landscapes as well, where we're um, carrying out orangutan conservation. We've heard an awful lot about the impacts of the incoming EU deforestation regulation on everything at the event. How do you see the potential impacts of EUDR being on conservation? I think that's a funny one because I think this EUDR has been something that NGOs have been pushing for for a number of years and it's brilliant that this is in place now. So in terms of it being the first world law on deforestation then the impact for that could be huge and it could be a follow-up in future for other countries to take this on board. I think one thing that we've found though certainly working with UK businesses and EU businesses as well is that we are already getting a good supply of for example sustainable palm oil. So in terms of the impact on conservation although we will clean up the EU's supply chain we're not necessarily going to stop any more deforestation in the field. The sense from a lot of people is that actually what will happen is the clean supply chain that's already being produced is going to come through the market into the EU and that the impact on the ground will be negligible. However, I think if we can use the EUDR as a case study going forward, now that there's a clear message out to agribusiness that deforestation in supply chains uh, needs to be eliminated, then that's the way you can move forward in the future. Yeah, we've certainly heard an awful lot about the unintended consequences potentially of EUDR across the event here. So how are your projects specifically going to be impacted then, do you think, by the regulation? It is a bit of a funny one because as conservationists, we always laugh that we're almost trying to make ourselves redundant through our jobs, particularly on one of my big projects which is a behaviour change campaign looking at UK businesses and encouraging them to adopt sustainable palm oil practices. If you put a legislation in place then that is done for you, which is fantastic. In terms of the UDR though, with the UK being set outside of that, there will be some UK businesses that are impacted by the EUDR, so we, I feel like we will start to see some legislative changes in the UK by the end of next year. However, I think it'll be when the UK due diligence comes in at a later date that we'll see the biggest impact on our projects. Having said that, for us at Chester Zoo and for zoos globally, it's not just about cleaning our supply chain, it's having that impact on the ground. So as zoos and aquariums, we actually work collaboratively across the world with other global zoos. So what I can see this doing is, is giving us a move to working in more countries where the buy-in is bigger and looking at trying to have an impact in some of the other kind of producer and buyer countries outside of the EU. For you then, what does a sensible approach to regulation and tackling deforestation in general look like? I think a sensible approach is not assuming that legislation is going to be a silver bullet. The same way as we look at certification, it's everything playing together. Obviously this legislation is going to have an impact, it's sent out a very clear message. I think next steps are making sure that not only this is this implemented, but that it's monitored and evaluated. There is a concern that commodities that are outside of the scope of the current EUDR are going to be impacted and nature will be impacted. So for example, people moving from palm to coconut oil, which which isn't actually currently in the EUDR. So there's a lot of monitoring that I think will need to take place by people on the ground to make sure that there's no further deforestation for the commodities. And then it's also not forgetting that 
what our goal is here, which is stopping deforestation on the ground. EUDR isn't going to do that by itself, so we need to continue those NGO conversations, those industry-to-industry -industry conversations, government-to-government -government conversations as well, that we don't just stop at legislation, and that we're continuing to look at these landscape approaches, bringing smallholders on board. So there's a lot to play for here, and it's not just legislation that's going to have the impact. A slight concern is that there's so much focus going to be put on EUDR that it will take our eye off the ball a little bit on the landscape approaches. So yes. just making sure that everything is still to play for and people still keep that focus of deforestation free as the goal. So keeping the focus on the, on the fact that an all solutions approach really is required. Yeah, definitely. Catherine Barton, thanks very much. Thank you. I'm joined by my colleague Hannah Homari, a project director of our event here in Amsterdam, the Sustainable Commodities and Landscapes Forum. What are the takeaways for you from the event? Oh, I mean, where to start? We covered so much ground in two days. The way we always set up our events is to have maximum audience engagement and really bring them into the conversations. But I have to say, I was quite blown away by how much we got from our audience, not just our expert speakers and panelists, but all the insights and experiences from everyone in the crowd. I would agree. It was great seeing people being prepared to share their experience. Mm -hmm. We were under the Chatham rule, of course. It just means that people are able to use their own experience to frame their discussions rather than think thinking about what their corporate viewpoint is. Exactly, and also, I mean, testing out a lot of new things this time around. So, you know, we had the event app, which I think really helped everyone with the networking. Um, and then, of course, the fifth room sessions, one of which you led. So our more intimate pre-registration only, max 20 participants, no panel, everyone comes and shares and leads the discussion themselves. So, yeah, yeah, I think that was a highlight. I'd love to take you forward for next time. Hannah, thanks a lot. Thanks, Ian. I'm joined by Peter Samri. Welcome. Hello, Ian. We've just wrapped up at uh, Innovation Indeed Forum's uh, Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference. Clearly, the European Union deforestation regulation dominated a lot of the conversations. Some quite negative comments, some talking about lots of challenges. Others keen to point out that it's a well-meaning, well-intended bit of legislation that, you know, perhaps the devil will be in the detail of its implementation. I certainly picked up the unintended consequences when the Muslim masses point around having to remove potentially some smallholder farmers mm. from supply chains. If that's included across other commodities, Muslim masses in the power sector, there's going to be some big changes if that's what happened. Yeah, uh, it's a real challenge. It's a balancing act. On the one hand, regulation and legislation can drive improved behaviours, but if you get to the stage where the consequences are not what you'd want them to be, and I think excluding smallholder farmers is, is clearly going to be one of them, that's not helpful. Yeah. So there is some thought needed about how we can go forward without that being a problem. Well, let's talk about some of the other things that came out of the conference. One thing that came out for me, we talked quite a lot about the flag and GHG protocol going into being finally feels that we're able to make some progress on scope three. Yes, I think with all these things, it's a question of people coalescing around what a sensible definition looks like being. And I think, again, one of the things I think we've seen come out of the last couple of days is people being prepared to try stuff, try new ideas, try new ways of working, and then find out what works best and then improve as they go along. And I think being able to have a clearer idea of well, what do we mean by scope three, how do we quantify it, how do we deal with it, I think has got to be a step in the right direction. We've introduced this year, which I've been very excited about, a lot more engagement with, with growing communities, with yeah. farmers. We had have some videos across the couple of days. We had a, a panel this morning. I spoke on Zoom with a farmer in Malawi and a farmer in Uganda. Very powerful testimony hearing from yes, them. Exactly. Clearly, they need to be involved in the conversation. Yeah, I think otherwise there's a danger that farmers are things under whom things are done. It's almost a quasi-colonial approach, whereas actually understanding what they're facing into understanding what they might want to do about it, I think is key. And we had a very good example of local government 
organizing from Indonesia. So it's very clear that these things can happen, but we do need to be better at listening to them. Yeah. Resilience was a key point as well, yeah, wasn't it? Keep, right. keep coming out. Resilience to regulatory change, yeah. resilience to climate change, and also long-term commitments it's and acceptance problem. that change in the short term might be <coughs> negative, but for the positive long-term change, you need to accept that there's going to be these blips, bumps in the road. Yes. Change leads to complexity. I chaired a panel looking at financing of climate change and some of the complexity, the different layers around country political risk, longevity of off-taking, because it's not just about we can sell it. You've got to have a contract in place for 10 or 15 years in order that a bank's risk committee can accept it. So there are real challenges about that. But again, I think we're doing better at gradually identifying these individual challenges and finding ways of dealing with them. Yeah, financing huge. Carbon markets, we talked about. I don't think there's lots of conversation to be had around how the carbon markets can benefit growing communities. That's not yet at a mature level, I don't think, but those those conversations will no doubt continue. And incentives, we heard a lot about incentives that are perverse. And again, the regulatory incentives are sometimes not in the right way. We need to have incentives that encourage business communities to set forward to do the right things to deal with impact. The most interesting one of that was what do you do with farmers who've managed their environment well for 50 years? They haven't deforested. And under the way the current regulations and the current process works, people who've done bad things in the past get rewarded for doing less bad things now. Whereas those who've done well all along are missed out of the equation. So again, there are obviously instances like that which we need to address better. Well, we've had a great couple of days. Fun having you along as ever, Peter. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, great to be here as ever and see you next year. It was a great pleasure to speak to everyone and my thanks to them all for taking the time to offer their comments. That's all for now. Goodbye.